Father, we are just absolutely staggered in our souls by these words. We are, are moved beyond our ability to have words to wield the emotion, Father, the, the greatness of, of this gift to us, this gift of grace. For the one who lived a life that we could not live and died the death that we should have died. And for this, Father, we forever give you great, great praise. And we pray from the bottom of our heart in the name of Jesus that you will increase our faith in order to bring great honor and glory to your name in this life, in this community, and in this world that we live. Thank you so much for your word, Father, as it points us to you and helps us to understand your mind and, and your love for us and your compassion and mercy. And we pray, Father, that as we study this text that Josh has just read for us, that you will give us eyes to see it and ears to hear in such a way that, that we turn toward you. Father, bless us as we press our mind in this study. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have been with us from the beginning of the year, you know that on Sunday mornings, sometimes on Sunday nights, we are going from Genesis to Revelation, looking at each book of the Bible in order to understand the narrative or the story, the themes of the Bible even better. And one of the statements we've said from the very beginning of this series, Holy Words, is that the Bible is not a collection of random stories. It's not a compendium of myths. It's not an anthology of, of, of just proverbs and wise sayings and ancient documents. But it's one story from beginning to end about God, about man, what went wrong, and what God is doing to put it back together again. Uh, what we're going to do today though, and next week, next week being Easter, is to step out of that series and to press our minds into the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus as, as we think about this, this, this most important event that shaped not only our lives, but has shaped all of history and all of eternity. And we want to focus our attention this morning on the text that Josh read from us, Mark chapter 15, verses 16 through 32, and to see a theme that runs through Mark's telling of the death of Jesus, the narrative of the text where Mark describes Jesus' death on the cross. And the theme is this, Jesus wasn't merely executed, but was made to suffer. Jesus wasn't merely executed, but was made to suffer. That's the theme that runs throughout the Gospels when it comes to this part of the passion, this part of, of the story of Jesus and the cross. Jesus was mocked, he was derided, humiliated, he was shamed, he was struck, he was spat upon, and he was scorned. I mean, think back to this text that has just been read so well for us. Verses 16 through 20, the soldiers mock Jesus and they spit upon him and they beat him. In verse 24, he has been stripped naked. When we think of Jesus on the cross, he has been humiliated and being crucified naked. In verse 27, there's this placard, this sign that's put on top of the cross that says, King of the Jews. Now, there's a couple of ways of understanding that, but that's not the normal thing that you put on top of a cross where somebody's being killed brutally through crucifixion. In verses 29 through 30, there are all kinds of people that are passing by, and instead of being reverent as somebody is, is, is gasping in pain and, and, and breathing their last, Instead of passing by reverently, those that are passing by, verses 29 and 30, are hurling insults upon Him. 
In verse 31, the chief priests and the teachers of the law are mocking Him. Verse 32, even those that are crucified at the same time, the ones that He's crucified in between, are heaping insults on Him. What Mark is, is trying to do is to show that Jesus was not just killed, but that He was mocked, and He was shamed, and He was humiliated completely. Now the question is this. Why is that so important to Mark to give us the details of that part of the story? Why is it so important to Mark to tell us that Jesus suffered, that He wasn't merely executed, but that He was made to suffer as He was crucified? Why so many details about the humiliation and the shame? Well, I think there's, there's, there's probably a lot of reasons, but there are at least three that I want us to look at this morning. The first is that the mocking reveals something about us. And the mocking also reveals something about the heart of Jesus. And then our deriding Him, our scorn of Him, our, our shaming Him also reveals something about how our own hearts are transformed by the cross. Now, the first thing. When we think about the mocking, it reveals the darkness in the human heart. It reveals the darkness in the human heart. And it does it, I think, in two ways. The first is this. The mocking reveals a hostility to the claims that Jesus made. The religious establishment, the leadership, the religious leadership, spiritual leadership of Jesus' day was very hostile and hated the claims that Jesus made about Himself. And it's really not just them. If you think about us, I mean, we struggle. The human heart does not change through the ages. The human heart kind of struggles with that sort of thing in our own age as well. And so the question is, what were those claims that, that brought the mocking and the hate and the crucifixion to Jesus? Was, was Jesus mocked? Was He humiliated and spat upon because of the things that He said in, in the Sermon on the Mount? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Or, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Was He, was he mocked because He was a kind rabbi and a beloved rabbi and a wise teacher? No, look, look at the text. He claimed to be the king. Not a king, but he claimed to be the king. In verse 29, he claimed to be the true temple. He said one time at the beginning of John's Gospel that you break down and tear down this temple, I'll rebuild it in three days. They said, let's see it. In verse 30, he claimed to be the Savior. They said to him, you know, he saved others, but he can't save himself. He claimed to be the king, the true temple, and the Savior. And the human heart struggles against claims like that. We hate them. We hate those kinds of claims. And we try to undermine them. Why? Because when somebody makes claims like that, we're forced into an all-or-nothing position. Either he is everything that he says that he is, which makes him the king of the universe, which would include all of our individual, radically individualistic worlds, or we have to reject it. There's no really middle ground at all. I mean, C.S. Lewis is the most famous for saying it and probably the most eloquent and articulate in saying it, but there is no middle ground when it comes to the claims of Jesus. When you think about it, if he did not speak the truth but was a liar about these claims, he knew that he wasn't the Savior, he knew he wasn't the true temple, he knew he wasn't the king, but he said he was anyway, he's a liar. And who wants to follow a liar? He can't be trusted. You can love him, but you can't follow him because he's not trustworthy. He's a liar. Or, as Lewis says in mere Christianity, he's a lunatic. On the par of a man who says that he's a poached egg. You know, he says that he's the king, and he says he's the temple, and he says that he's the Savior, and he may believe it, but everybody knows he's not. 
And he's a lunatic. And he's foolish. And we're foolish if we're going to follow a lunatic. Or it is everything that he said that he is and more. Jesus would not allow the middle ground. He said that he is the king and the savior and the Lord and the master and the true temple. And, and he is the, the, the Passover lamb. It is all or nothing. And we either love that or we despise it, do we not? The magnitude of the way that Jesus defined a relationship with him was either all or nothing. He said, if you want to be my disciple, you have to every day, you have to pick up your cross and follow me or you cannot be my disciple. It was all in or you're not in at all. We either love that or we despise it. Now, one of the famous examples of this in, in ancient literature, it's actually modern literature when you think about the history of the world, but it's august. It seems ancient to us. We've talked about the confessions. A lot of you have read the confessions and you remember the story of the pear tree. Augustine, after he is, is, has been converted and has become a bishop, he's writing about his conversion story and how he came to faith. And he remembers as, as his young kid that there was this pear tree across the fence in a neighbor's orchard and, and the pears were great. And one day he got talked into some friend, by some friends into joining them and stealing the pears. And they stole a bunch of them, jumped the fence, ran in here, and they started eating the pears. And later on in life, Augustine is thinking back on this. And he goes, why in the world did I do that? Why in the world did, did I steal those pears? I had enough food. It wasn't like I was hungry. He says, you know, the second thing I thought of is I don't even really like pears all that much. The reason that he decided to steal the pears was because somebody said they were forbidden. Somebody said that you couldn't have them. They belong to somebody else. They don't belong to you. You can't have them. And Augustine said, you know, there's something in the human heart that does not like to be told how to live. That does not like to be told how to live rightly. Which, as you and I know, is the core of Genesis chapter 3 that involved another tree and another fruit that was forbidden. And Adam and Eve, that first couple, decided that they didn't trust God to give them the life that they thought they ought to have. They didn't think that God knew what He was doing. That God was holding back. That God was withholding something from them. And then all of a sudden, the Christ's claims of all or nothing, and He is the King, come near us, and we don't like it. That hostility comes out. But the human heart is not just hostile to those kinds of claims. It's also blind to the way, the methodology of Jesus. The mocking reveals a blindness to the ways of Jesus. There is this second theme that runs throughout this narrative that, that Josh read to us in Mark chapter 15, verses 16 through 32. That the theme is, is sort of implied in the attitudes of those that are mocking Jesus. You certainly cannot be king if you're weak. You are not king because we are able to do this to you. If you were king, God would not allow us, would not allow this thing to be happening to you. If you were king, we couldn't kill you. And the assumption there is that God cannot work through pain and suffering. And part of this, part of the reason for this being a part of the way that human beings think about the world and about pain and suffering and our experience of it is that we're not very good with pain and suffering, are we? Now, I'm not a, a glutton for punishment like you, none of us are. But we're not very good with it, are we? Blow after blow. I mean, think about what happens in life. Blow after blow, knock after knock, frustration after frustration, setback after setback, setback, and what happens to us? We feel like we're beat down we feel alone. We feel 
unempowered. We feel disabled. Sometimes we feel aloof from what is happening around us. We feel like our world is stopped while everything else is going on. And it makes us hard. Our hearts. Enough suffering and grief comes into our life. And what happens to the human heart? It gets calloused up. Our hearts become like flint. Like steel. It gets hard because we know the way our life should go and God is not getting it right. And so we become mockers. We mock. And in Mark chapter 15, Jesus is mocked because He said He's the true temple. And He's mocked because He said He is the King of the universe. And He said He's the Savior. And these are the reasons the people are hurling insults upon Him and heaping all of these insults on Him. They're mocking Him. But in all of the Gospels, there's always great irony. And the great irony here is that Jesus was really all of those things that He said that He was and that He was saving the world through the very event that they were witnessing. The problem was that they couldn't see it. They couldn't see it. How many times did Jesus say, oh, if you only had eyes to see, if you only had ears to hear what it is that's being said to you? The reason they couldn't see it is because it didn't fit any of the categories that made sense to them. And the mocking reveals what was really happening in our human hearts. It's dark. And our hearts are such that our Creator and our God and our Maker can come into the world and we see Him not and crucify Him. But it also, all of this mocking reveals what makes Jesus tick. It also reveals the love that is in the heart of Jesus. Taking the shame and taking the insults and taking that derision shows what's in the heart of Jesus. Now, you know as well as I do, especially those of us that lived up in the 60s and 70s and have been around for a little bit, that most, if not all cultures, ours is not excluded from this, we all have a concept in every age, in every culture, of the action figure hero. Right? Things are getting dark and darker and darkest, and then all of a sudden it looks like utter defeat, and who should pop up? But John McClane rises up and claims victory. And we have a picture of John McClane coming up. There we go. We have a picture of John McLean. Or the enemies are about to prevail. And they've been chasing him down. And all of a sudden, Jason Bourne says, enough is enough. Or the bad guys are pursuing and pursuing and pursuing until they discover that you never back Josie Wales into a corner. Or there's a crime wave that's about to overtake Mayberry. And Barney Five says, not on my watch. I mean, you know how it works in the movies, right? Things get worse and worse and worse. And it looks like the hero's about to die. And it looks like all is lost. And nobody is going to be saved. And then all of a sudden, he turns the tables. He gets out of the handcuffs. He cuts the rope. He comes to the rescue. He comes down off of the cross. And that's what the hero does. And everybody's just waiting for it. I mean, nobody wants to go to a movie where all of the good guys are wiped out. They may be life in some instances, but that's not good Hollywood. And these people in the first century like us have been really watching a lot of Hollywood and a lot of blockbuster movies and they look at the Messiah on the cross and they're wondering when He's going to come down and when He's going to come off of that cross and when He's going to turn those tables on Rome. And they're waiting for Him to see what He's going to do. And what they don't realize is just how heroic it really was for Him to stay there. 
Is the Roman army really keeping Jesus on the cross with their posted guards, their centurions there, when the one who is on the cross had 10,000 angels at his beck and call? Is it really the nails that are keeping him on the cross when he made everything in creation? It's love that keeps him on the cross. It's the kind of love that allowed the Christ to become weak and to stay weakened and to take it. All of the humiliation in love. In a shame culture like the one that Jesus lived in, the greatest asset was your good name. To have a great name was worth more than gold and pearls and all of those wonderful things that Solomon talks about. To have a great name was a great thing, a great treasure. But to be mocked and to be scorned your name destroyed, to be crucified then was the utmost worst thing that could happen to you. The crucifixion was not just cruel and painful. And the most horrible way to die in that particular age, but it stripped away your name. You know, people talk about, even in our own age, about dying with dignity. I read somewhere a long time ago that when the body begins to go, so does the dignity. All dignity on that cross was destroyed. You see, the cross killed the person and their name. The cross killed the person and their name. And in love, He took it. Became weak, stayed weakened, and took all the humiliation. And I wonder, why in the world would He do something like that? Why did He do it? Maybe my favorite TV show of all time, at least in the recent years, is a show called Foil's War. British detective series during World War II. The irony of the series is that Foil is a detective who is investigating murder during a war. And in the third season, there is an episode that's called The French Drop. Foil is, begins the, the show wanting to do something. He's, he's investigating murders and doing police work when he, he really wants to be involved in the war effort somehow, helping England. And he has his one last chance of working with an admiral and it all looks set up that he's going to, to be working with this admiral and doing something that he considers important for the war. But he's called in for one last case to investigate a murder. It looks like a suicide involving the son of Sir Giles Messenger one of the most influential political figures in all of England, one of the most famous names in England during World War II. Powerful, a rich individual, landed, a a lord, well-known. And it's his son who who has died or has committed suicide. And it turns out that a newly formed counterintelligence group whose secret presence, nobody knew about it, is essential to winning the war against Germany. And Foyle discovers that they are at the heart of this accidental death of this this young man. And if Foyle goes public with the information, he's going to destroy this organization that is vital to the war efforts. And so he's asked to keep it secret. If you tell the truth, it's going to destroy what we're doing. And you can tell them later, but for the meantime, keep it safe so that we can save, uh, keep it secret so that we can save lives. And so he's asked to keep it secret until the end of the war. And at the end of the show, Sir Giles' messenger, who is kind of a curmudgeon and crotchety old man, and he's angry and he's upset, uh, and it's understandably so because of the death of his son, he walks up, he walks up to Foyle, 
and verbally completely humiliates him in front of several people. All of it unjust. All of it untrue. And at the end of the show, you're asking the question inside, will he rise up? Will he lash back at Sir Giles with the truth and save his name? Or will he just take it? And Foyle decides to take the shame. And decides to take the humiliation so that others, other lives, can be saved. And you're sitting there and you know that if he chooses to grab his own honor, if he chooses to defend himself, if he chooses to fight the injustice in the way that we think he ought to fight the injustice, others, maybe even his own son, but others will die. But Foyle chooses the shame and the unjust treatment in order for others to be saved. That's our story. If Christ takes the glory and leaves the cross, then we're left to eternal shame. But if Christ goes down into that shame, deep, 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 down into that shame, and that, that, that unglorious death, then we're the ones who get the glory. Paul wrote to a church in Corinth and said, you know, God made Him who had no sin to no sin in order that we might, finish it with me, become the what? Righteousness of God. Isaiah centuries earlier said he was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. You drop down to verse 5. It continues, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds. By his wounds. In the places that he was pierced, we are healed. And when this gets all the way down inside of us, from not just something that we know in our head, but it gets all the way down inside of us, my friends, it changes us. Which brings us to the last thing it reveals how our hearts can be changed. Suffering can make us hard. You know this. Suffering can make us hard if we don't know how to bear it. There are times of suffering and grief and trouble and adversity in our life where it makes us doubt the love of God. And it can make us a mocker. I thought you loved me. There's an interesting passage by Paul in 2 Corinthians 12 where Paul has his thorn in the flesh. We don't know what it is, but it was something that was agonizing. It was something that really kind of gripped Paul for a certain period of time. And he prayed three times for it to be taken away to remove the suffering. But it doesn't happen. He thinks his life should be going a certain direction and God says no. He prays three times for it to be taken away to remove the suffering. It didn't happen. But God says, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. How did you do it, Paul? How did you suffer this thorn in the flesh and not get hard and not get bitter? How, how did you, you suffer with this thorn in the flesh and not get hard and not get bitter and not become like flint and not get all calloused up, but instead you became patient and courageous and joyful and softer and kinder to people? More forgiving. The reason is that Paul remembered the thorns of Jesus. 
Paul remembered the thorns of the Christ. The crown of thorns he wore as he suffered the shame on the cross, Paul remembered it. And he remembered how Christ asked for that thorn to be removed, for that cup to pass from him in the garden. On the night he was betrayed. And God said no. And God said that His power would be perfected in weakness. And only through the weakness of Christ on the cross and in death on the cross would that power, the the resurrection power of God be released into the world. And God's power was released into the world. And grace... And, and, and patience and self-control and kindness and gentleness and a new way of living and a new way of responding and reacting and a new way of, of placing our affections on things in this world. It all, as a power, came into the world. And Paul's suffering, that thorn in his flesh that he prayed three times to be taken away and God says no. Doesn't make him hard. But makes him hopeful. And earlier in that same letter, he said, you know, I think about the glory of Christ. And I do not lose heart. Though outwardly, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. I don't know if I like reading about the suffering of Jesus very much. I don't like reading the suffering about anyone, let alone the most sensitive man who ever lived. And because he was the most sensitive man who ever lived, the more painful it was to him. But I'm glad to know that his experience is our experience. We too suffer. And we also know that his ability to overcome through the power of God and to become beautiful is the same power that's available to us and the kind of people that we are. What happens when you go into this, in, into any kind of a context, any, any kind of a setting or circumstance in this community or anywhere in the world or with your family, in the neighborhood, and people revile you and they humiliate you and they say all manner of unjust thing about you? What do you do? You remember the thorns of Paul and the thorn, thorns of Christ. And that he lost his name in order to give you a name. And as you go into the world, you can be graciously generous. And you can be profoundly powerful in the way that you show self-control and kindness and gentleness and forgiveness and patience and faithfulness wherever you go. And people begin to get an idea of the beauty of Christ in the way that they see it in you. Ben's going to lead us in a song right now for us to praise the kind of God that has done these kinds of things for us. We're going to have some of our shepherds down here at the same time. If there are ways that our church can minister to you, pray for you, take care of you, uh, teach you what it is that God wills for your life,